0: This is the Law School Show, discovering the person behind the resume, bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on the Law School Show.
1: Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Law School Show. I'm your host, Kelly Humber, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with David Taylor who is a partner at Conway Baxter Wilson Litigation in Ottawa, and an all-around nice guy. Uh, how are you doing today, David?
0: I'm doing just fine. Thanks very much. How about yourself?
1: I'm I'm also doing pretty good. Uh, we are both speaking today from slightly different parts of the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabeg people, uh, otherwise known as Ottawa, and... I wanted to speak with you today about both your professional experience in public law litigation and, in particular, a case you have been working on for a number of years involving Indigenous Peoples in Canada. I understand that for the last eight or so years, you have been counsel for the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada in their complaint at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Uh, listeners might be more familiar with this as the case about Canada's underfunding of Indigenous child welfare services, um, and I was wondering, maybe to start us off, if you could tell us what this case is about to you.
0: Sure, sure. So, so this case started actually uh, a lot longer than eight years ago. I'm kind of a, a, a part a part way addition. Uh, in it, and actually, it was at the end of the month. I think it's February 25th is going to be the 15th anniversary of uh, the Caring Society's ex- executive director, uh, Dr. Cindy Blackstock, filing her complaint with the Canadian Human Rights Commission, uh, which is the first stop in a Canadian Human Rights Act complaint. Uh, and she did that alongside uh, the national chief of the Assembly of First Nations, or I, I think it was a delegate of the national chief at the time, but it was the Assembly of First Nations was. Uh, was the co-complainant and it still is the co complainant the Caring Society. And the case is really about two things. Uh, so the first thing it's about is on reserve uh, child and family services. Uh, and so that's called the First Nations Child and Family Services Program, which is something that uh, what is now Indigenous Services Canada and has been known under other names, Indigenous Northern Affairs, Aboriginal Northern Affairs and Indian and Northern Affairs kind of over the years. Uh, delivers uh, on reserve through either Child and Family Services agencies run by First Nations or uh, through agreements with the provinces and territories. And the second part of the case is about something called Jordan's Principle, uh, which I think we're going to get into uh, in a bit more detail because it's it's hard to do it in a couple of sentences. Uh, but Jordan's Principle is all about the idea of ensuring uh, substantively equal access to services for First Nations kids. And so what that means is not just having You know, service A and service A are available to two different groups of kids, but also, you know, that the outcomes that the non First Nations kids can reach with their services can be reached by First Nations kids, even if that means giving them different or more services uh, in order to help them get to that level.
1: Thanks. That was a a good broad overview of kind of the case that we're going to be getting into more detail. Um, I was wondering if you could also tell us what discrimination was being alleged in this case?
0: Yeah, so the the principal kind of discrimination alleged was about uh, on the First Nations Child and Family Services program side was about underfunding and also like the the strictures that were put on the program. And so with respect to funding, um, the Auditor General actually in 2008, so shortly after the complaint was filed, uh, found that uh, more or less, uh, like sixty-seven cents on the dollar, were going to on-reserve programming compared to the provincial system. Uh, even though the needs on reserve could be as high as a 2 dollars, three dollars on the dollar. So the idea was you're getting, you know, substantially less money for much, much greater needs. Uh, and then the second issue was that you know you really had a a program that was a, a federal, you know, a federal program driven on administrative guidelines. That wasn't number one matching you know provincial practice directions in terms of you know where the provincial system was going which was you know from 1990 when the program started through to kind of you know 2013-14 when we were actually in front of the tribunal and even more so now uh, towards prevention as a much more important part of the system and what you had was by the time the complaint was heard and starting in 2013 uh, four jurisdictions in Canada that had no prevention funding at all for First Nations on reserve, and then the other the other six or seven had you know a more limited you know kind of capped budget approach to prevention, and so in both cases it was really privileging removing kids from their families, and so part part of the essential the essential way this worked out was that you know when social workers were looking at the tools that they had to help families. Uh, you know the easiest tool sometimes was to was to remove the, remove the child from their family and put them in a foster home where they could deliver the services with an increased budget so for instance if a child needed a medical bed there was no money to pay for the medical bed at mom and dad's house but you could pay for the medical bed at a foster family's house and so that was i think the, the real root of the discrimination the tribunal was addressing and just the failure to kind of keep up with changes in practice and to ensure that the, the program was kind of continuing to meet the needs uh, and then I think the overarching, you know, concern that was found is that there was a real lack of substantive equality. So in terms of considering each community and what are the additional challenges or barriers that they face because of their, you know, historical, geographical and cultural needs and circumstances. Um, and then on the Jordan's principal side, it was really about, uh, you know, essentially an excessive level of bureaucracy that had been taken to uh, trying to figure out how to get these services to kids and really needed to kind of cut through that and get to the to the root of the matter, which is you know what does each kid need in order to, to make make a life life for themselves that are similar to that that non First Nations kids uh, are able to are able to meet.
1: So, I guess maybe to also just paint more of a picture in people's minds um, of who exactly is involved in the case and who the whole the the whole scope of the case. Um, maybe you could tell us a bit about who exactly. Is involved in the case. Uh, you're a lawyer, but who who are the true complainants here?
0: Yeah. So, so the, the two complainants are are my, my client, which is the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada, and that's uh, an organization that has a uh, has a board uh, made up largely of of, uh, of individuals from either from child and family services agencies or who have a kind of a child and family services uh, background. Uh, or you know, background of you know, looking after and and uh, and looking out for, I should say, and advocating for kids, uh, and then of course the executive director of the caring society is uh, is Dr. Cindy Blackstock, who is uh, uh you know she began her career in social work in the uh, in the late 1980s and has been a real force uh, in terms of advocating for substantive equality and justice for First Nations kids, uh, you know, for many decades now, and so uh, so. They, they were one co-complainant. The other co-complainant was the Assembly of First Nations, which, of course, is the one of the national indigenous organizations uh, in Canada. And they represent, uh, you know, the, 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 I think something a little bit more than 600 First Nations uh, across Canada. Uh, and they have, you know, a number of advocacy related uh, uh, activities that they, they take on as well. And then alongside the two complainants as a party was also the Canadian Human Rights Commission, uh, which is a statutory body established under the Canadian Human Rights Act, uh, to number one screen complaints uh, at the initial stage, you know, when they're when they're made under the act uh, and decide what gets referred on to the tribunal and what doesn't. Uh, but then also, in, and sometimes in my, my view, kind of more importantly, uh, to accompany complaints before the tribunal when they are referred there and to lead evidence in the public interest. And uh, and they had a really important role in this case uh, because, you know, the, the, the Caring Society, you know, particularly at that time, you know, had had pretty severe cuts to its budget from the Harper government uh, in terms of government funding that it had received to help it operate. Uh, and so, you know, they were they were relying on a pro bono legal team, which, you know, I kind of later became a part of. And um, uh, so having the, the commission there kind of as the backbone of, you know, the really heavy lifting that it takes to get through a 75 day hearing and, you know, 14, 15, 16 volumes of evidence, I think we had over 500 documents that were part of the case. Uh, and I think about 25 witnesses, like it's really, it was helpful to have kind of an institutional litigant there who was able to, to take those things along. And then, in, in addition to those three, there's obviously uh, Canada, which is the respondent, and so that was Department of Justice lawyers who were on for uh, representing, you know, the, the federal department that's had a number of names uh, over the course of the complaint. And then interested parties, we have had three, uh, three, well, three to five, depending on how you want to count. Um, so the Chiefs of Ontario have been a party since 2009, and they are here because things work a little bit differently in Ontario. There's an agreement that was reached in 1965 between the federal and provincial government. Uh, or the government of Ontario that uh, that kind of results in things working a bit differently for Ontario than the rest of the country. Uh, and then there's Amnesty International, which was there to speak about international obligations. Anishinaabe Aski Nation, uh, which is a group of uh, First Nations in Northern Ontario, joined the complaint in the spring of 2016. And their kind of purpose in being there was to ensure that the interests of remote communities uh, were spoken to, uh, remote, their remote communities in NAND territory. And you know, they've had some things to say about remote situations elsewhere in the country. And then we've had two other kind of, I say you know three to five, depending how you count, because on kind of issue-specific uh, matters that have arisen you know, in the six years since we got our win at the tribunal in 2016, uh, we had uh, the Inu Nation uh, come in to speak about some prevention-specific uh, issues in 2020. Uh, and then we had also uh, the Congress of Ad- Aboriginal Peoples came in uh, in 2019, uh, to deal with some issues related to Jordan's principle and who is eligible for Jordan's principle, so so that's kind of the cast of characters uh, from the parties standing, and just uh, the Innu Nation, their group, they're, they represent First Nations in Labrador, and uh, the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples represents essentially non-status Indian uh, groups, and so the Indian Act. One of the things that it contains is a provision about who is and isn't a status Indian. Uh, and that can have a lot of links to federal government programming uh, for First Nations people, and what the federal government considers as being eligible and not eligible. And so, the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples is another national Indigenous organization, and they they really deal more with the non-status uh, issues. And so, there was an intersection between Indian Act status and Jordan's principle that that arose that we, you know, had they had some submissions on uh, before the CHRT. So they were. An interested party for the purpose of that issue as opposed to the case uh, as a whole. Uh, And then, of course, you know, you can't talk about the case without talking about the kids. Uh, And so, you know, the the kids are, you know, 165,000 plus First Nations kids who live on reserve in Canada. Uh, And that's, you know, that's 165,000. It's probably more than that now because that's a statistic from about, uh, you know, almost 10 years ago. And so I think if we looked at the census, I'm sure you'd have more kids now because there's a lot of population growth uh, on reserve. And then also with subsequent decisions that have kind of expanded uh, Indian Act status, there's, uh, there's, we will get into that, it's a whole other podcast, but uh, there's a number of decisions that have, have had the result of, of that uh, Indian Act status being ex- expanded in the last five years in particular. Um, and then of course, uh, for Jordan's principle, that, that applies not just on reserve, but off reserve as well. So you have First Nations kids really across the whole country. Uh, who are able to access more services under Jordan's principle? So that's that's kind of the uh, the cast of characters that we're, uh, we're we're dealing with in this in this litigation.
1: Maybe now we could move to discussing some of the central issues in this case. One of them being a jurisdictional issue, and the other um, the Jordan's principle, which there's kind of interrelated there. Um, and I know we've been dropping talking about Jordan's principle. Um, a bunch. So I was wondering if you could explain Jordan's principle and what the jurisdictional issues are in a case like this, and just kind of what issues the Jordan's principle is meant to address.
0: For sure, for sure. So, so I guess I'll start with Jordan's principle, um, which is uh, it's 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 really it's it's you know, we call it a child first principle, and it's something that was endorsed by the House of Commons unanimously uh, back in December of two thousand seven. But the story of Jordan's principle actually starts uh, almost twenty, actually more more than uh, more than twenty years ago now. Uh, and so uh, Jordan River Anderson was a little boy from uh, Norway House First Nation in uh, in Manitoba, and he was born with with some pretty severe and complex medical needs. And so he, he actually had to go you know, into the hospital in Winnipeg, uh, you know, not not long after actually you know, pretty much right, right away, um, you know, upon birth. And so he needed a lot of care from specialists and uh, and um, you know, just a lot of close attention of the medical system. And when he was two, <clears throat> when he was two, he, uh, he uh, was told by his doctors or his family was told that, you know, Jordan couldn't go back to Norway house because he still needed to be in close enough contact with the medical system that he could have outpatient care. Uh, but he could go to a therapeutic foster home in Winnipeg. And that would, you know, do a few things for Jordan to get him out of the hospital. Uh, it would allow his family to visit with him, you know, in a family home setting and not on the ward at the hospital in Winnipeg. Uh, and that was just, you know, for what Jordan's medical needs were, like that was the appropriate next step for him to take was to go to a therapeutic foster home. And what happened was um, the the federal government, uh, Indian Affairs said, well, that's that's a Health Canada expense, you know, because it's uh, or, 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 you know, I guess it was Health, Health Canada first would have said, no, that, that's a child and family services expense because it's a foster home and child and family services over at, uh, at at INAC said no no that's a health expense because it's related to his medical needs and then both of the departments said oh well hold on no no it's off reserve so that's a government of manitoba expense and so they you know contacted manitoba to see if manitoba would pay for this and then the government of manitoba said no 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 this is a status indian kid from reserve so even though the placement is here it's still a federal government expense and you know i i say this a little bit uh you know kind of a, with a little bit of joking exasperation, but uh, you know, very sadly, what happened was Jordan never got to leave the hospital and passed away at the age of five, uh, despite for the last almost three years of his life, all of his doctors agreeing he didn't need to be there. And it was a matter of essentially just the bureaucracy being unable to uh, to, to, come, to come to an agreement of who should pay. And so very courageously, Jordan's family and Norway House, House took up, you know, kind of this cause because Jordan wasn't the only one who was in this situation. This is something that was happening in other cases too. And it's something that, you know, the National Policy Review, which was an, an a study undertaken in 2000 had identified as a problem. And so what, uh, what Jordan's family and Norway House did was they created Jordan's principle. And Jordan's principle was the idea that no matter know which level of government the child comes into contact with first that government should provide the service and then they can sort it out you know behind the scenes and so it's essentially you know the the you know the child like in this case jordan goes to the therapeutic foster home and you know health canada pays and if health canada thinks somebody else should be picking up the bill then Fine, you know they can have those disputes uh, behind the scenes, but at the end of the day, like Jordan's not waiting, uh, you know, for his uh, for his services, and so there's a lot of advocacy around Jordan's principle, and uh, that led to uh, an NDP MP in 2006 uh, proposing a motion in the House of Commons to, to endorse uh, Jordan's principle and to call on the federal government uh, to uh, to implement it. And that took about, you know, a year, maybe a little bit more than a year um, for that to kind of come to fruition. But in December 2007, uh, they voted, I think it was 215 to nothing, uh, you know, to to have Jordan's principle go through. And so Health Canada responds in 2009 and says, OK, yeah, we're going to we're going to do this. Like, we'll we'll implement Jordan's principle. And they come to a memorandum of understanding with INAC about how they're going to deal with these cases. They set aside about 11 million dollars. But long story short, essentially nothing ever happens because what the government bureaucrats do is, again, taking a bureaucratic approach. They say, well, Jordan's principle is for kids that are just like Jordan's. You need to have complicated medical needs and a dispute with the provincial government, you know, and, and, and. And so essentially, you know, there's a 50 or some cases that come forward. And even then, like, that's the tip of the iceberg because they're not out there looking for these cases, right? And each of the cases, the evidence before the tribunal shows just kind of gets defined away as not being a Jordan's principal case or the case is resolved because the child passed away. Like it's just it's just a really horrible, um, you know, a horrible example of, of the government taking a bureaucratic approach. And so the, the there's a little bit of momentum that grows in 2013 when the federal court in a case like called Pick Two Landing. Um, You know, essentially reaches a decision on a judicial review and says, no, Jordan's principle is a federal undertaking and a decision that the INAC had made about providing home supports uh, to a mom uh, in Nova Scotia was unreasonable because it didn't take into account Jordan's principle. And then the real, you know, the real key moment for Jordan's principle comes uh, in the 2016 decision when the tribunal recognizes and says, yes, you know, Jordan's principle exists. It's an obligation. It's a human rights obligation on the government. And then in 2017, we get an even more specific uh, decision in order, kind of giving the government some pretty specific direction about how it should be implemented. And then the government, you know, to its credit, uh, you know, take takes that on and sets aside. I mean, initially it was three hundred and twenty seven million dollars over three years, which then grew to about six hundred and fifty million over the first three years. And now it's running somewhere around five hundred million a year, although that's, I think, suppressed a little bit because of COVID because there's a lot of access to services that have been uh, disrupted. Um, and there's over a million services now that have been approved for kids under Jordan's principle since 2017. So, you know, just a huge sea change. You know, we went from no services, you know, from 2009 to 2016 to now a million uh, from 2017 forward. So, so that, that's kind of in a nutshell what Jordan's principle is. And so it's it's two layers of it. You know, one is don't let jurisdictional wrangling uh, delay services to a child. Uh, but then the, the further, you know, layer to it is you know, when you talk about you know what service the child needs, it's not just defining that by what does the province provide. It's you know what are the child's needs, and so you can't be limited. You know, we call it the technical term is the normative standard of care. And so if you know if the province says well we give uh, we give a hundred hours of you know uh, of of learning assistant support, but if you know the evidence is that for reasons linked to colonialism. A first nations kid needs 150 then you should be looking pursuant to jordan's principle and consistent with the human rights act you should be looking past that hundred hours to see you know what does the first nations child actually need to reach that same you know essentially reach the same um, level that the 100, 100 hours for a non-first nations kid uh would give and then i guess <laughs> you asked about jurisdiction that was a very long answer in jordan's principle but the other element of jurisdiction that came into the case uh was actually comparing f- First Nations kids to non-First Nations kids because of different service providers, and this is actually an issue now that's you know over ten years old. And the the Human Rights Tribunal actually initially struck the complaint out because they said this is under a former uh, a former member of the tribunal, for, the former chairperson of the tribunal, uh, or I guess a few chairpersons ago. She said that uh, you couldn't compare First Nations kids to non-First Nations kids because the service providers were different, so you couldn't compare a federal service provider to a provincial service provider. So it's a very technical argument.
1: Maybe just just something to tease out there before you keep going. Yeah. Can you also explain uh, for people who maybe are less familiar with the Division of Services and this part of the Constitution? And sure, sure. Why? Why is it that, like, for myself personally, as a settler Canadian in Ontario. When I go to get healthcare services, I have an OHIP card, and the province pays for my healthcare. What is different? Like, what's different between my experience of this and Jordan's experience?
0: For sure. So, so, and that's a great, uh, that's a great question. You know, when when I uh, when I get, I've got you know a a talk I've given on this sometimes, and I, I like I like to start my talk, you know, at time immemorial. And then move my, myself forward. So We've started a little bit later than that, uh, you know, starting in two thousand and seven. But uh, but I think you got to go back to eighteen sixty seven for the answer to that question. And essentially, you know, when when they when they split up uh, responsibilities in eighteen sixty seven, th- things that were mostly local went to the provinces, and things that were you know kind of national in scope went to the feds. And at the time, uh, you know, particularly in eighteen sixty seven, when there was really no publicly funded healthcare, there was not really a child and family services. You know, system like these things were not seen as being as important, and I think you know, for part of that reason, went into Section 92 of the Constitution Act 1867, or the British North America Act, as it used to be called, uh, and that sets out you know the provinces' responsibilities. And so through through the the combination of a few different provisions, the provinces get healthcare largely. The feds have some role, kind of residual role in it, but it's it's like actually administering the healthcare uh is a provincial responsibility. That's a bit of an oversimplification. Um and then under, you know, matters of a local nature and property and civil rights, uh it's it's uh, child and family services uh goes to the provinces as well. But where there's a uh you know there's a if for for, you know, for listeners who haven't taken con law yet, uh double aspect, you know, comes into this because you also have under 9124 Uh, which is 91 is the federal government's responsibilities and subsection 24 is, you know, in very British North America Act terms, Indians and lands reserved for Indians. And so that's essentially, uh, you know, know, the the colonial reason for it was, you know, better to give the federal government, um, you know, this responsibility so that as it's expanding westward, it can deal with the indigenous population. uh, So it can get railways built, you know, which provinces won't be able to do on their own. Uh, but the modern incarnation of that, you know, as we've seen in Daniels, is that there's, you know, an important relationship between the crown and indigenous peoples, and part of that is given expression through 9124, which gives the federal government a direct role in in dealing with indigenous uh, indigenous peoples in Canada. And so, for for someone like Jordan, uh, you know, there's the provincial aspect, which is, you know, the the regular services, you know, he would have got as a Manitoban, but then there's also the federal aspect, which is the services that he gets as a First Nations kid, and in that case as a status Indian kid. Um, and so that's where some of this, you know, the double aspect comes up. And uh, and in the, in the Human Rights Tribunal decision I was mentioning from 2011, you know, that's essentially what the Human Rights Tribunal says is like, well, there's nobody quite like First Nations kids in Canada, because for the rest of us or for the rest of the kids, there's no double aspect. They just go to their provincial service provider. And so she struck, struck the claim out on that basis. The federal court thankfully brought it back and said, look, you know, you don't need you don't need comparison to find that there's discrimination and this would lead to a whole bunch of crazy outcomes. That you know the framers of the Human Rights Act never intended that Parliament never intended when it enacted federal discrimination legislation, um, and so the complaint was reinstituted after that and went forward. Um, so that's that's kind of some of the jurisdictional struggle that comes up and leads to things like Jordan's principle um, being necess- a necessary tool to make sure that First Nations kids don't fall through the cracks.
1: Excellent. That was I think that was a really good rundown uh, of an otherwise very convoluted uh, system.
0: Uh, well, so, you know, we, and we can stay tuned too, because there's, you know, there's a lot of action uh, in this area right now. Like the uh, the federal government passed in 2019 the um, the First Nations uh, Inuit and Métis, you know, uh, Children, Youth and Families Act, uh, an act respecting, sorry, an act respecting First Nations Inuit and Métis Children, Youth and Families, which is essentially. You know, delegation legislation that sets out number one national standards for CFS across the country, and number two, you know, allows First Nations, Inuit, Métis, Indigenous governing bodies to draw down, uh, not only draw down legislative authority over CFS for their for their nations, but to also then incorporate it. You know, uh, again, <laughs> con law terms, uh, you know, through through interdelegation to incorporate that and in, to give it the force of federal law, so it's paramount over provincial law to the extent of any conflict. And that actually went on a reference to the Quebec uh, Court of Appeal. Uh, The reference was heard last September. Uh, We were there for the Caring Society, Professor Naomi Metallic from Dalhousie uh, and myself. And uh, that was, you know, the the whole, you know, three-day hearing was all about, you know, what is the scope of 9124 and does it go this far, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll be getting some more word from the the courts that will add, I'm sure, more texture and interest to this already complicated area in in the next little bit.
1: Yeah, definitely a very live issue. Um, everything's very ongoing. So I guess just to kind of finish off our discussion on Jordan's principle, I was wondering if we could explain a bit what the government was arguing on this point about the application and scope of the Jordan's principle in the case at hand.
0: Yeah, so I mean, their their, their argument—I uh, mean, they had a number of arguments back in 2014, and they were mostly, you know, very technical. But it really boiled down to, um, you know, Jordan's principle isn't really binding; it's not really. Um, anything more than kind of you know for, further administrative process, you know, it doesn't impose any substantive obligations on government, etc. So, and really, what the tribunal came back and said about all of that is that you know Jordan's principle is really just an articulation of what the Canadian Human Rights Act already requires the government to do, and it's to look at these kids and ensure that their race and na- or national or ethnic origin uh, doesn't doesn't lead to adverse outcomes for them. You know, so it's all about treating. You know it's all all about not treating unlikes alike you know and that's that's the whole idea of you know substantive equality is that you you don't give everybody the same treatment you don't say well everybody has equal access to the stairs it's like well okay but persons who you know require the use of a wheelchair to move you know they can't get up the stairs and so that's actually not equal access to the door you need to build a ramp um and so those are you know, look like kind of those are more you know easier examples for people to grasp as opposed to getting to you know the level of well actually no you know, because of, because of the, the, the the intergenerational impacts of something like residential schools, uh, you know, we might need, you know, funding for greater prevention services, or we might need, you know, funding for, uh, you know, more learning supports in schools, because these these this group of kids, you know, because of their, you know, historical and cultural context requires something different from, you know, your average uh, settler kid like me, you know, growing up in the 19, uh, you know, the early 1990s in Edmonton.
1: I think the point that you just made that essentially the Jordan's principle is a rearticulation of rights guarantees that already exist shows how important public litigation efforts to protect indigenous rights are. So I wonder then if we could move on a bit to talking more about the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal specifically and essentially how this case is being resolved is getting resolved. Um, my first question is, why did this case go to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal? And why did you not just go to, straight to the court? Why was this not a constitutional case?
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting if, if you ask my client that question, I think you'd get an, a different answer than kind of why I think it's a good thing it went that way. And, uh, you know, she she, she said this in, in public fora in the past. And I've heard her say it, you know, in the media and uh, in speeches. So I'm not I'm not giving away anything that's privileged. Uh, but you know, when when, when Dr. Blackstock started this case in 07, it was without any lawyers involved, and she'd gone on the website and it looked like a very straightforward process to, you know, file a few forms and get the Canadian Human Rights Commission to look into this, right? And so she, uh, you know, she's a very decisive person, and so she, you know, forged ahead that way, um, which is you know that's, that you know it, 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 it appeared to be a more accessible system than it actually is uh, in in reality as opposed to on paper. I have a case that's just been referred to the tribunal and like the complaints were initially filed in December of 2018, you know, so it's more than th- more than three years to get onto referral. Uh, you know, and admittedly there's some COVID delays in there. And then we had a, you know, there's a few other things along the way that kind of slowed us down, but still three years, three years is a very long time. And even this case, the, the commission didn't investigate in this case, which is a, an interim step that often happens. And it still took almost a year and a half for the commission to refer it on to the tribunal. So, and again, not to denigrate the, the commission, like they they operate in the space that they operate with the resources that the public purse allots them, um, but it's not necessarily the smoothest and fastest uh, system to go through. That said, um, there are some very significant advantages, uh, in my view, uh, to having been through this process. You know, one is you've got... Uh, you know, expert decision makers who are well versed in the in the realm of discrimination and human rights versus you know you go to superior court and you never know who you're going to get like that's just part of the reality of our justice system is we have generalist judges who are very well versed in a number of things but you know what what the draw you're going to have on any given case you, know, you never know um, the other the other really really significant thing uh, was the rules of evidence and so under the human rights act the the tribunal is essentially empowered to receive. A very wide uh, array of um, of uh, of of evidence, uh, and it really privileges the only kind of limitation on what they can take in, as long as it's relevant. That's a bit of an oversimplification, Uh, but the key thing for us was it really did away with the rule against hearsay. Uh, You know that all becomes a matter of weight, whereas you know I I have a had another you know very hard fought uh, you know. Uh, you know, rights-based litigation, which was under Section 23 of the Charter, which is about French language schools, and that was against the government of BC, and they took a much different approach, i.e. we had to prove every single gosh darn document, which, you know, anyway, led led to some challenges in terms of actually getting getting the case in, right? So, um, you know, there, there's a real benefit to the procedural flexibility that you have with the tribunal, and then also now in the remedial phase, which, you know, frankly, we're now... You know past past year six of being in the remedial phase there's been a lot of again you know further the tribunal remaining involved and remaining seized and the flexibility of its procedure to deal with this you know have all been things that have worked out very well for us um at the end of the day so i'm i'm, I'm quite pleased that you know we we're in the tribunal environment uh, i think it would have been a lot a, a different road uh, going through the courts um maybe in some senses it would have been a faster road going through the courts because you courts because you might have had uh uh, you know quick quicker um, uh, you know quicker start uh, to the adjudication uh, you know you may have had um, uh, you know you're kind of eliminating eliminating a screening level kind of of, uh, of conflict that, that led to you know its own procedures in federal court et cetera but I think you know the results have kind of spoken for themselves it's been a good uh, it's been a good place place to end up
1: So on that note, I know another aspect of the King Human Rights Tribunal is that uh, it's the King Human Rights Tribunal is empowered to put systematic remedies in place. Yeah. Yeah. So so a systemic remedy is something that really addresses the root
0: cause of the problem. You know, it's not just provide service A to child A. It's you know really why was child A not receiving service A in the first place and what do we need to do to to ensure that you know other children in child A's position will receive the service in the future. So, you know, fr- from our perspective it's always been about, you know, ensure that the discrimination is stopped. And then prevent it from recurring, and so and that happens at the systemic level by changing, you know, by changing the processes uh, within government uh, that have kind of led us to this point. And so the you know the the caring society was, I think, in a very straightforward way in its submissions, actually arguing for the implementation of a number of recommendations uh, that had been made in the past, whether NPR in two thousand, which we've spoken about. Uh, or another set of uh, studies that happened in 2005 and 2006 called the one day uh, reports which were a, a follow up on the NPR uh, or you know the auditor general who looked into the matter twice as well as the public accounts committee in the house of commons and so there were a lot of existing solutions uh, out there about um, you know more equitable funding levels and uh, better incorporation of uh, provincial practices and uh, and where where we've ended up essentially is that the uh, a group called the institute institute for fiscal studies and democracy uh, which is a think tank at the uh, at the University of Ottawa, uh, led by the former Parliamentary Budget Officer uh, Kevin Page, uh, and also Dr. Helena Gaspard, who's kind of the senior researcher on this. Uh, they, they've kind of come up with a more uh, child well-being based manner of funding, and so it's a, a way of looking at the circumstances of each community and saying, okay, based on these circumstances, this is what we need to be addressing, and looking at components like you know poverty. And components like remoteness and other things that will drive up, you know, the the cost of, uh, of, of the services required and also the kind of the services required uh, in different communities. And so it's really all about the systemic remedies are all about kind of reorienting the perspective of the system uh, to be focused on kids and their needs, as opposed to kind of policies and authorities from the federal government perspective.
1: I think so. Yeah, that was a well-articulated answer. And it's kind of interesting the scope of solutions, that systemic remedies in the human rights context, um, how that can kind of get more meaningfully at addressing issues rather than simply one person, one case at a time, which is more so what can happen uh, if exclusively working in the court context. Exactly. My next question is Uh, I understand that you faced some significant challenges in the litigation process,
0: Yeah, and you know, I have I have to say that much much of that actually pre- preceded my time on the file, so uh, you know, we don't have the rule against hearsay here. So uh, you know, I can kind of say what I understand, but you'll have to take it with a grain of salt that it's mostly other people kind of uh, you know explaining it to me. But uh, you know, I think the document issue was a pretty serious one. Um, you know, the way that kind of came around was that uh, D- Dr. Blackstock, I think it was sometime in 2013, had gotten back an ATIP, you know, access to information uh, request. And that's, you know, the Access to Information Act is federal legislation and Canadians can go and, you know, request documents, uh, you know, on on certain matters. And, you know, as long as various restrictions don't apply, they can be produced. And so, you know, she had done an ATIP on uh, on some parts of the uh, the federal uh, the, the, on, on the child and family services side. And she was seeing documents that we hadn't seen in the disclosure uh, from the tribunal or, or fr- from from uh, the disclosure at the tribunal from Canada. And so that was something that uh, kind of. My predecessor counsel raised, you know, instructions said, "Hey," and then the government comes back and says, "Oh, yeah, actually, we've got another hundred thousand do- documents that we haven't disclosed yet, for you know whatever reason," and so that led to a delay of about eight months uh, in the hearing. And it actually turned out some of our best uh, evidence, you know, came in, particularly about the, um, like the, go- the fact that the government kind of knew that there was a problem and actually had solutions uh, in hand, and they just never went anywhere. Uh, like there's this uh, presentation, I think it was in 2013 and it was kind of like, you know, option one, option two, option three. And, uh, you know, option three was essentially don't do anything. But the other two options were like, yeah, no, we need another, you know, 276 million in this program. Uh, but it didn't go, uh, you know, so that's that's uh, was, you know, pretty key in terms of saying, well, of course, it's discriminatory. Look at their own documents. You know, We can prove we can prove our case on their evidence. Like we don't need our evidence. Look at this. so. You know, that was an important uh, element to have and always, you know, as a, as, a, as a litigant, if you can prove your case on the other side's documents, you know, it's always a, a pretty strong, you know, position to be in. Uh, you know, and then there are items, items too, uh, related to, uh, to, you know, what the allegations of retaliation, there was a, a retaliation motion heard where, you know, the, the government was essentially, you know, monitoring Dr. Blackstock's social media and kind of monitoring events that she was speaking at. That came out later in uh, in, in ATIP, uh documents and the privacy commissioner had some things to say about that, which weren't uh, uh, weren't terribly positive, although the tribunal did find in the end that, you know, the privacy implications notwithstanding, it wasn't retaliation because that's part of what happens in litigation. Uh, but there was even there was a meeting that uh, Dr. Blackstock was excluded from, like the chiefs of Ontario wanted to bring her along to a meeting as an advisor and she was told, you know, no, you can't come into the building. And then that that was found to be retaliation, that exclusion, and the tribunal actually ended up awarding her compensation uh, of twenty thousand uh, dollars. You know, ten thousand for pain and suffering from kind of the indignity of being retaliated against, and then ten thousand for the willful and reckless nature of it. Um, so certainly, you know, there's been some not nice uh, moments, you know, in uh, in the history of the case. Um, you know, certainly there's been a lot. There's had to be a lot more uh, uh, collaboration between the parties in the remedies phase because the government opted not to appeal um and so there's been more you know discussions and you know kind of parameters for working together to try and implement things but you know notwithstanding that you know there have been 19 orders you know that have followed the the merits decision in january of 2016. uh only i think five of those orders were on consent and the other 14 were litigated or it might be four and 15 something like that so you know an awful lot of litigation that has followed to try and get the you know to get the orders you know actually out in the community, um, and you know, we, we had approached this. You know, we talked a lot about systemic remedies, but we we approached it in a bit of a phased uh, manner. We said, look, we need immediate relief for the kids who are here today. Um, and if you even just think about, you know, the kids who were born like the day that the tribunal decision was rendered, you know, they're now six, and you know, and a couple of weeks, like they turned six, you know, uh, two and a half weeks ago. And like that goes from being a newborn to being in grade one, like that's that's a huge, huge change in a kid's life. Right. So knowing that it was going to take time to get the system reformed, you know, we said, no, we need to start with immediate relief. But we really didn't get immediate relief rolling on Jordan's principle until you know pretty much late 2017. And for CFS, it was more like mid 2018. By the time that really got rolling, and so you know, you say, "Oh, it's been six years." Well, I wouldn't say not saying you say that, but one might say it's been six years. But you know, it, it's actually because of the government's you know uh, slowness in getting started on implementing some of these remedies. You know, it's it's been uh, it's 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 actually been a little less long than we've been working on things like long term reform, although that has certainly picked up. Uh, you know, I'm sure, we'll talk about the media reports from the end of twenty twenty one and those kinds of things. But so, long term reform work has definitely picked up in the last uh, in the last little bit here.
1: Yeah, we'll get we'll get to some of the events of twenty twenty one soon. Uh, my final question on this kind of aspect of the case is, I was wondering what it's like to be involved in a case of this nature, and kind of what I mean by that is. A, uh a case of this nature where there's ongoing harms to indigenous communities uh, for so many years and what is it like to be litigating but also very aware of like it's like we said like it's a live issue kids are being impacted continuously by this so
0: no you know it, it's it's definitely um I mean, on on the one hand, it's it's very rewarding and uh, and meaningful work because you know you know you know that what you're doing is having an impact on uh you know on on folks uh or, you know what what you're doing is going to have a very positive impact in people's lives. Uh, it can be very frustrating as well because you know delays mean that those things that you're trying to fix continue. And you know, for for me, some of the most um, challenging work sometimes can be when I, I do do some direct work with families. Uh, either on appeals or on uh, judicial review where there's a challenge in getting access to the services in Jordan's principle, It's kind of like the hard cases, the hard Jordan's Principle cases kind of shake out that way where it just helps if lawyers get involved to just try and just try and smooth things out. Uh, Although lawyers don't always (laughs) end up smoothing things out. Sometimes it goes the other way. Uh, I try and be a force for good. Uh, but you know you think about that and it's uh it it's, it can be a challenge because you think you know this family really needs help but I've got all my other obligations in my practice I have my obligations in my personal life and it's uh you know it's 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 in sometimes crisis circumstances and so you've got to put things aside and really focus um and you also need to make sure that like your're you're the the files don't become like other litigation files which you can just kind of go and sit there and linger because you know on the other end of the file there's a kid with very real needs um, you know so it, so it's been um, so it's been I think on on, on um, you know' it's, it's both it's both very motivating um, it, in terms of the positive sense of motivation and also sometimes the negative sense of motivation of having the stress of of needing to carry things along but at the end of the day you know uh, in particular I think of some of my, my cases, where uh, you know you, you, you get the service in place and you get to talk to to mom or dad and kind of hear the relief uh, you know in their voice of okay now this is kind of settled or the service provider who's been having a hard time getting things sorted out uh, with ISK and it's uh, it's you know it's just it's just it's just a nice uh, it's nice to get to the good conclusion uh, on these things um, so it's certainly it's uh, but, but I think that's the nature of doing meaningful not to say other work isn't meaningful but doing particularly meaningful work is, you know, your highs are high and your lows are lower uh, is kind of somehow that experience can shake out.
1: I think so. Yeah, that was a nice uh, and very thoughtful reflection on the challenges, but supposed suppose delights of this sort of litigation. Maybe now let's talk about what has been going on more recently with the case. You mentioned 2001. I know that there was a federal court decision in 2001, mm-hmm. um, maybe you could tell us. What else is relevant that happened in 2001? And in particular, I am interested to know um, the, what the federal court's decision means for the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal and other complainants who are looking for systemic remedies.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, uh, so, so, so tw- in, I guess like we'll, we'll rewind a little bit to 2019 um, on, on this one, because one, one of the things that we had asked for, along with kind of the immediate relief and the long-term reform was compensation. And the idea of that was that you had uh, you know, immediate relief was going to help the kids in the system today. Long-term reform was going to help, you know, those kids a little bit later and the kids who hadn't entered the system yet. But there was a real shortcoming in that kind of relief for the folks who had already been through the system because, you know, they were discriminated against in some cases for a long time. Um, and for some of them, the discrimination, you know, didn't cease even though there had been a victory before the Human Rights Tribunal. And so to have some kind of vindication, you know, for those rights, uh, you know, it was very important to us to seek compensation and also in a way to try and shift the economic incentive for the government, uh, because I think, you know, there's there's certainly in my view, a lot of evidence in this case that part of the reason nothing happened and nothing changed was because it cost too much. And so, you know, the idea of you know, having compensation is okay. You might have saved money in budget, you know, 2006, but you're paying it back, uh, you know, in budget uh, 2019 or you know forward. And so, uh, so what happened was uh, was we 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 argued that in the spring of 2019 that the uh, compensation argument, and then the uh, the tribunal decided in the fall of 2019, actually just before the election in 2019, that uh, uh, the compensation would be payable at $40,000 per victim, and then also $40,000 for each parent. Uh, who lost their child, except in cases of abuse, uh, that there would be compensation payable, and so the government uh, took that to federal court on judicial review. Um, through 2020, we kind of uh, worked on some of the, you know, the judicial review got put on hold, and we worked on some of the technical elements so that everything could go up all at once, and so we, you know, fleshed out a process, a compensation process, uh, you know, for getting the money to victims in a safe, culturally safe way. Uh, and then the other the other item that happened, and we talked about this a little bit when I was mentioning in the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples is there was a decision around uh, essentially what did First Nations child mean for the purposes of the Jordan's principle orders, uh, because the tribunal order said, you know, all First Nations, Jordan's principle applies to all First Nations children. And then the government came back and said, OK, so it applies to all children with Indian Act status. And then you know the party said, well, no, no, that's that's not that's not what they said, and that's not what we meant when we were doing our submissions, and so there was kind of between 2017 and 20, you know, late 2018, early 2019, a lot of back and forth between the parties about that, and uh, we argued that in 2019, also just before the compensation issues, and then in 2020, the tribunal came back and said, no, no. Uh, we didn't mean to limit it with Indian Act status, and so if you've got kids who are recognized by their nations, like that's sufficient. Nations should decide who First Nations kids are, you know, not the Indian Act. Uh, and then there was some some relief around, um, you know, essentially the, the the second generation cut off under the Indian Act. And not to get too deep into this, but you know, essentially if you have uh, if you have Indian Act status yourself, uh, you know, that might be something called six one uh, Indian Act status. And then if you have uh, a child with someone who doesn't have status, that child has 6-2, and if you've got 6-2 status, you can't pass that on to your own child unless the other parent has status themselves. And so that's kind of complicated, but what it boiled down to for us was you could have you know half siblings, one of whom would be eligible because they got status because their 6-2 parent had a child with another parent, but if your parent, you know, you had the same 6-2 parent, but the other parent happened to be non-status, then you wouldn't get status. And so, you know, your, your 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 brother or sister might get, you know, respite services or physiotherapy services or whatever. But you in the exact same household with the exact same parent, you know, facing a lot of the same systemic issues wouldn't get, uh, you know, wouldn't get um, uh, the service. And so the tribunal kind of agreed with that scenario and, uh, and that decision was what came up. But the government appealed. Uh, or, or judicially reviewed that decision as well on uh, that that application for judicial review came in on December 23rd, 2020. So that was kind of, I was at the, was at the grocery store, you know, getting some stuff for Christmas and saying, like, well, Merry Christmas to me, you know, <laughs> off the federal court. So so that was all heard in, uh, in June of 2021, those two judicial reviews together. So on compensation and on uh, and on the kind of definition of a First Nations child. And uh, the government, you know, had a lot of arguments about, no, you need to bring a class action. Uh, this isn't the kind of compensation you can give under the um, uh, under the Human Rights Act and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then issues too about Indian Act status and not consulting with First Nations. Um, and, and the federal court, you know, they have to say, you know, um, Kudos to the federal court. It turned a decision around very quickly in September. Actually, the day before National uh, uh, National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, the decision came down and dismissed both of Canada's uh, judicial reviews and found that the tribunal was reasonable uh, in uh, in bringing forward uh, the compensation decision and the First Nations child decision. And in particular, and this was, I think, you know, you asked about significant for others. I think this conclusion that the tribunal's you know somewhat dialogic approach of saying you know, here is the approach, what are you doing, you know, coming back and saying, well, here's what worked, here's what didn't, and having kind of a an iterative process instead of saying, you know, from on high, you know, here is the remedy, go out and implement it. Um, but that was a reasonable, you know, way to proceed because the government had alleged some kind of unfairness in these different rounds of kind of how things had come out. And, uh, you know, it's a matter of saying, no, no, it was, it's open to a tribunal, particularly one like, like the Human Rights Tribunal, which has a quasi-constitutional jurisdiction to root out discrimination, uh, to take a dialogic approach that involves the parties, and so I think in in other cases that tackle big societal problems, it gives the tribunal a little bit more, uh, you know, reassurance that that's an okay methodology, uh, you know, to work to work within. Um, and I think the other the other thing, uh, too that obviously it led to was was the appeal uh, to the federal court of appeal. And a lot of pressure, you know, through the 2021 election and then up past that to the appeal on the government to do something about this compensation issue, which had been lingering for quite a while. And it's had, it's, it, you know, kind of, there are two kind of class actions that were started in 2019 and 2020 on the same issue. So obviously there was other pressure on the government too on compensation. And so then that, that, that led to the announcement of a period of uh, uh, kind of, we called it a focused and intense negotiation period to see if we could come together uh, to reach a framework uh, to resolve the long-term reform and compensation issues. And uh, and, that, and that's essentially what, what was reached uh, on New Year's Eve, was, uh, was an agreement in principle, uh, both on the compensation side, uh, which would include the class actions, the federal court class actions, and on the long-term reform side for uh, Jordan's principal and the Child and Family Services uh, program.
1: That sounds like a really good way to ring in the new year.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, uh, it was seven o'clock, so I didn't have much time left. Uh, you know, my New Year's Eve after that, but it was very, uh, it was very gratifying to have that done, uh, particularly after a lot of hard work by a lot of people uh, over the kind of seven weeks, uh, seven eight weeks leading up to that.
1: Also, just to touch on a bit um, something you just said, there was, as far as the implications for other groups who are also trying to get more. I suppose you could say robust solutions to systemic problems. My takeaway from the case was that, or from that federal court decision was that, was in a way the federal court saying that we should take seriously the ability and suitability of the King Human Rights Tribunal to address systemic uh, discrimination.
0: Well, and that was what, what one of the, one of the government's fundamental, you know, arguments on the judicial review is you can't give individual remedies in a systemic case, essentially saying, you know, if you bring a systemic discrimination case, you only get systemic remedies. If you bring an individual discrimination case, you only bring individual remedies. And they, they linked it back to this case from 2012, the Supreme Court of Canada called Moore. Uh, and that was a special education case. And the, the tribunal there, or the commission, I can't remember what they call it in British Columbia had, had given some systemic remedies. And what the Supreme Court said was, well, no, you actually couldn't, like you didn't have the record you know, before you to deal with that. And they tried to kind of parlay that over and say, well, when you've got a systemic case with no individual, you know, claimants, it's just two organizations, you can't do it. And, and to me, it's like, well, you know, if, you, if you, you don't say that we've got the forest and so we can't do anything about the trees, right? Like, I can see saying we've only got a small part of the ecosystem here, we can't, you know, posit that out to the larger part. Uh, but to do it the other way around didn't make a lot of sense to me, particularly with the volume of, of, of documents we had in this case. And so I think, you know, what the what the federal court is saying about taking the tribunal's jurisdiction seriously, that again, goes back to the quasi constitutional nature of the human rights act, right? Like it's something that parliament has put in there to eradicate discrimination in the federal sphere. And so you think, you know, if parliament hasn't put any express limitations on that in the act, we shouldn't be reading, you know, we shouldn't be reading them in.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, maybe now we could pivot a little bit and you could give us a little bit of an update on what stage uh, the case is at right now.
0: For sure. So, so we, we've, like I said, we reached this agreement in principle on, uh, on New Year's Eve. And so that's, uh, you know, that that's, I think, you know, set us on a course to try and uh, have a final settlement agreement that'll wrap, uh, wrap up the issues. I mean, the, the, the solution that in this case, in my kind of personal view is unlikely to be a, uh, you know, one and done, we've now fixed it forever. It's it's going to require, uh, you know, careful attention uh, to ensure that there are, sy- there are systems and structures in place, not only to ensure that the discrimination doesn't reoccur, but to make sure that the systemic, you know, broad-based solutions are working as they should in individual cases. Uh, and, you know, I've seen that in, in my Jordan's principle work for individual families is, you know, you can have the best and most robust systemic orders, but if they aren't being implemented uh, in, in the right way by the bureaucrats, then they won't have uh, you know, they won't have a, an impact for the kids on the ground. And so you know there needs to be oversight and accountability mechanisms that will continue to operate after the tribunal is is has ended its jurisdiction to ensure that everything you know stays on the rails. And so it's the really now it's the parties working together um, to try and develop that you know agreement, and then it'll be taking the agreement to the tribunal to say, you know, this meets your order, which was end it and make sure it doesn't happen again.
1: Thanks. Uh, yeah, and so that is that was my final question on specifically this case. I, I think that this has been like a really informative and in-depth look at the case, where it's going, where it's been, and what it means for other cases in the future. Uh, now, I was wondering if we could talk a bit more generally about your career, some of the things I'm interested in is why public law litigation and do you work in any other areas of the law
0: for, for sure i mean so for, for me public law like i've always um i've always had a passion for you know the interaction between the citizen and the state you know it's 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 government and what is that doing whether it's you know following politics as a kid or you know uh, uh, senate page uh when i was in my undergrad for three years uh, so it's always been something that's really drawn me uh, in. And I remember working in the Legal, Con- Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee uh, as a Senate page and being really kind of like taken in by a lot of the issues that they were dealing with at the time. And uh, so to me, like, you know, public law was always an area I wanted to head in because I, I, I like the idea of trying to trying to push government to do something it doesn't want to do, you know, uh, which is, I think, really what, what, uh, what you get to uh, working for claimants in the public law uh, space. Um, and so so that's really what led me here and in terms of other things I do, I mean, I, I actually do a lot more public law litigation than I thought I would um when I started out, you know, I was always assuming it was going to be balanced off by other you know more lucrative uh parts of practice uh but I think you know I've, I found myself in a, a boutique uh, litigation shop where we've got our overhead under pretty good control and I have understanding partners who uh, who support my public interest uh practice in different parts of it so, you know, I found a nice little ecosystem uh, to do this work in, but you know that's not to say that all I do is public law. I do I do private litigation as well, um, you know, just you know various uh, you know ver- various kinds of cases for you know folks with disputes, commercial, some commercial litigation, uh, you know some uh, uh, just you know, tort tort based stuff, you know negligence, professional negligence claims, you know those kinds of things. Uh, So it's a bit of a bit of a grab bag, uh, a bit of a mix, but I would say a pretty heavy, uh, heavy emphasis on on public law.
1: Um, I also was kind of interested. uh, You have a pretty interesting resume and background and kind of different cases that you've worked on. But I was wondering if you could tell us some of your highlights and also some of your lowlights and big learning experiences that you've had in your career.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, my, my highlights and lowlights are probably all bound up in you know, one, one particular case I worked on in the first uh, three or four years of my practice. Uh, well, I guess, I guess by the time it was all said and done, it was the first six years of my practice. But uh, uh, just before I started working on the Caring Society case, I mean, I've been a lawyer for almost nine years. And so eight of those years have been taken up by Caring Society. So it tells you kind of how junior I was when I got brought in uh, to work on it. Uh, but just before that, I was working on this case about uh, French schools, and so is the Conseil Scolaire Francophone de la Colombie-Britannique out in BC, which is the, the Section 23 school board. So Section 23 of the charter guarantees minority official language rights uh, in education. Uh, so outside of Quebec, it's in French and in, in Quebec, it's in English. And uh, the school board there had started a claim against uh, against the provincial government for underfunding of its capital asset base. So, you know, not enough schools, not big enough schools, not nice enough schools or not schools with the right amenities, you know, to draw in, uh, and, and, and retain the kind of francophone community. And uh, I happened to be a summer student at the law firm that that was, uh, you know, kind of bubbling at. And then, uh, you know, I clerked at the Supreme Court after law school. And when I finished my clerkship, I went back to uh, that firm and uh, was on the trial team as kind of the institutional memory guy for the trial and so the trial ended up running you know 238 days uh, we had I think all told between the different parties it was almost a thousand pages of written argument we had like the the evidence you know, when all printed out would have been like I think like 67 feet long something like that it was it was cra- a crazy amount of information it was just wild. Um, So that was, you know, for me, a huge learning experience in terms of like the project management that goes into litigating something and particularly a complex claim, you know, getting that from, you know, I I didn't, I wasn't there from the start, right, because I was, uh, you know, I was a law student when the thing started, Um, but, you know, taking that from before trial through the trial argument afterwards. And then you we went, uh, I would say, you know, if it was a decision on points, like we won the big half of the trial decision and lost the small half. Appealed the small half to the uh, to the court of appeal, lost all our issues and lost of issue that the you know Br- the British Columbia government brought. So that was pretty low light. You know, you do worse than you did because you appealed. It's like when the prof says, "Oh yeah, I'll take another look," but your mark could go down. Uh, but then the Supreme Court granted leave, and then that was argued in 2019, and we won. Like we won the half we lost, uh, and we also won back the thing that we had lost at the court of appeal. And so that was like just a remarkable experience to take you know a, a new area of the law and like and like the law changed mid trial or because we had been up to the supreme court in a kind of a parallel proceeding and they changed part of the section 23 test um and so just uh, but I, I also qualified as part of the lowlights of my career because there were just some really challenging personal moments uh throughout the course of that trial because it involved a lot of work you know being in a 238 day trial it ran kind of we started the trial in December of 2013 and ended it in February of 2016. Uh, and just like, you know, the long hours kind of month after month and like living with a big, uh, big litigation like that, you know, also while doing the Caring Society thing. I have memory of a trip down to, to Georgia with my uh, with my spouse and like being up at two in the morning working on the Caring Society submissions. And that was just like our kind of six week summer break from the trial. And it's, you know, it's kind of like you're you're, you're caught because you got these two big things going on. So, you know, just, just learned a lot about, um, you know, trying to keep things balanced and how to deal with, you know, a, a lot of pressure from your from your litigation files and, you know, had had the great benefit of having very good colleagues on that file as well. And I think that really helps when you're in a, in a good team environment. Um, but that's, you know, for sure. You know, starting, starting your career off with a 52-week trial is a pretty good way to go in terms of getting court experience. So uh, it'll be a big, big highlight for me for a long time.
1: Well, that leads... Uh, very well into what is my final question. What cautions or advice do you have for law students who are making career and life decisions right now? Um, and I guess also lawyers who are early in their career?
0: Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, the big thing is, is, uh, you know, staying open to the opportunities that are in front of you. And uh, when when I was at the court, uh, Justice, Justice Deshaun had just, uh, had just announced her retirement, I think had just retired. And uh, but she came and gave her little talk to the clerks. Each of the judges kind of gives a talk to the clerks throughout the, the throughout the year. And there's always a you know, there's always a question about, you know, uh, advice, you know, like, what's your advice to, 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 to clerks? And this one has stuck with me. And her, you know, her advice was, you know, when the train comes, get on the train. Um, and so there's the idea of, you know, you don't always know where your opportunities are coming from, but when they arrive, you know, take them. Um, and I think particularly in your first five years of practice, that's really sound advice because you don't know um, you know, you don't know where your opportunities are going to come from, or what uh, what an, what an opportunity even necessarily looks like until it gets there. Um, I think also very important to have uh, a good network uh, of both you know friends and mentors to talk things through with. Like for me, anytime I've made a big decision in my career about you know which direction I want to go in, I have probably about you know there's like 15 people I end up talking to about it. Not not all at once, but you know as a series of uh, a series of discussions to get like just a wide array of perspectives on uh, on you know the, the pros and cons of doing things, and so I think that that's really important. And I think that's at any stage is to have good supports you know outside of your professional uh, life, or it's kind of you know part of your para para professional life. And, um, you know, I think uh, I think the other thing, too, is, you know, it is a lot of hard work in the first five years. And uh, I think, you know, if you're in a place that gives you meaningful experiences, like I played a lot of baseball as a kid. Like if you're having meaningful at bats where you know, you're know you you're learning something every time you're going to the plate um, and that's kind of moving you forward. I think that's really important because you want to get to year five kind of having, you know, that's longer than law school, right? The first five years of your practice and you want to get there with, with kind of having acquired something that you can take to move on to the next Round of your career, then I think in that context, as long as it's healthy and as long as it's safe, I think hard work isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, because that that is part of how you learn, is particularly in litigation, is is going through it and doing it. Um, but you know, it's 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 not sustainable to do for a really long time, and so I think that you know having a having a, a, a bit of a broader view about where your first years are going and that the, that this hard work is is meaning something and, and kind of setting you up for what's coming next is important. Um, and then I think the last thing is, you know, something a partner told me when I was a summer student, you know, working hard on something is like recognize it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, you've got you have times when you're going to have to, you know, run, you know, run hard and and do the work and, you know, it's uphill, etc. But then when you've got the times that are quieter, um, you know, you absolutely got to take advantage of that and take a rest, you know, and just uh, and just have other other parts of your life that uh, that you can kind of pay a little more attention to. Um, you know, it's it's um, we, talk, we talk a lot more about work life balance now than we did ten years ago. Uh, we talk a lot more about mental health now than we did ten years ago, and so these are all things you know you have to kind of pay attention to to look out for because um, I think our profession can be a pretty difficult place. And so just having your having your resources and supports and taking the breaks when you can get them and and when you need them are all uh, pretty important things.
1: Thanks. That was some uh, really good advice. I wrote some of those down and marathon is also a really good analogy i suppose you're also drawing on some of your personal um experience with marathons there
0: yeah yeah no it's uh, it's a helpful kind of frame of reference but uh it's uh you know and i guess the other thing i'll say is this is directly from my marathon experiences. you know you've got to run run to conditions and respect yourself uh and your ability so the, the example there is i, I did my, my fastest marathon time was in Kelowna. Uh, when it in twenty twenty fifteen, when it was about four degrees Celsius, and my slowest marathon time was in Toronto, uh, when it was about twenty two. I think after the sun came out halfway through the race, and let's say by, by two halves of the race were very different once the sun came out, and I was a bit disappointed in my results at the end. And then this kind of this, this this gentleman kind of just like manifested out of the crowd of people around me as I was kind of recovering. We just were chatting a bit, and I was kind of disappointed with my time because I was only half an hour slower almost, et cetera. And it was only two years later. And he just said, ah, you know, it was 22, you know, it's 16 degrees hotter. You, you've got to run run to conditions. And so, you know, measure your level of effort, not your time, you know, because you're, you're going to run slower when it's 22 degrees than you are when it's six, because you're, it's just, that's just how your body works. And so um, I think that that's, um, you know, particularly when we look at things like the pandemic um, and we look at things like uh, other stressors going on in our lives, like it's, uh, you know, you're not always in optimal conditions. And so just, you know, kind of Recognize and give yourself a break uh, when you're performing well under stress. Uh, I think that's an important, another important part.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I often, I don't know, I try to think in terms of uh, I did the best I could with the time I had uh, on things because that's I don't know, that's the best you can do.
0: No, and and the other thing too is you know is the the other one I like is you know the the perfect is the enemy of the good, and uh, I also like to add it's also the enemy of the done uh and sometimes you just need to you just need to recognize you've got a certain amount of time and do the best you can with it yeah
1: yeah uh well thank you so much for teaching and being available to share with us about your experience i learned a lot and i think that this will be a very enjoyed episode by our listeners so yeah thanks so much for chatting with me today
0: no problem thank you very much for having me on You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice, right to your earbuds.
1: Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.